This episode is brought to you by the members of the Best of Left podcast. I'm not kidding around about that. I couldn't do this without them. Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, NPR, Tom Hartman, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, and Slate.com. crisis, the entire financial system on the verge of collapse, everyone's pretty certain of one thing. We need legislation that decisively addresses the troubled assets now clogging the financial system. The risk of doing nothing is economic catastrophe. It's a terrible situation, uh, and we need to fix it. $850 billion in federal bailout money later. Let's check in for an update on how those reforms are going in tonight's... <laughs> ...are fixed. <laughs> of course... One of the main villains in the crisis was AIG, a company which overextended themselves by writing banks billions in unpayable financial insurance contracts, thus destabilizing our entire economy. They were f***ed. So, for $180 billion, the government took them over, and AIG is making some radical changes. I think the AIG name is, is so thoroughly wounded. We've already begun the, re the rebranding process to AIU. $180 billion and all you come up with is, why don't we change a letter? Talk about buying a vowel. <laughs> you know what the U stands for? You got some balls. <laughs> but all right, A-I-G-U, fixed. Also changing its name post bailout, Citigroup, which will now become Citiguru. <laughs> While Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac become respectively Mindy Sue and Jeffrey Monk. Plus, Bank of America will now be called the Good Time Teddy Bear Hugateria. All right, fixed. <laughs> but names only get you so far. You know what else was f***ed? Executive pay. As part of the reforms we're announcing today, top executives at firms receiving extraordinary help from U.S. taxpayers will have their compensation capped at $500,000. Boom! Fixed. You want the money? You play by our rule. I'm sorry? The Wall Street Journal says the Obama administration will announce today a plan to hire a pay czar and drop the salary cap on companies receiving bailout money. Oh, snap! Obama just dropped the cap on your ass. <laughs> but wait, she said something about a pay czar. Surely an iron-fisted pay czar will keep this overfed oligarch country in line. I'm not the czar, but what is being talked about, bonuses that do not exceed one-third of compensation. Oh, that'll teach them. <laughs> the only way they could get the bonuses they're accustomed to is by hugely increasing their salaries to compensate. But obviously the only way they could do that was if their salaries weren't capped. <laughs> so who's going to enforce these limits? Everyone's talking about this czar. Another czar, uh, number 16, as I've been saying, the White House appointing Ken Weinberg as the nation's pay czar, master compensation, whatever you want to call him. Ooh, I know what I'm going to go with. Money, honey. <laughs> I know it's taken, but ladies. So, 
Kazar Feinberg. My grandfather would be very confused. A million times I ask you, and then I ask you over again. You only answer, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. If you can't make your mind up, we'll If you really love me, say yes. But if you don't, dear, confess. And please don't tell me. Obama administration is working on a proposal to transform how banking is regulated. Reforming regulations means understanding what went wrong in the first place, how regulators missed all the financial shenanigans that helped to sink the economy. Hannah Jaffe-Walt is part of our Planet Money team, and she's been taking a special look at AIG. That's the global insurance company whose risky bets placed it at the heart of the financial meltdown. The government has committed to provide AIG with more than $170 billion in rescue money. Hanna's question was this. AIG was supposedly watched over by 400 regulators in 150 countries and all 50 states. So what went wrong? There was a gap in regulation. Sure, there were hundreds of regulators, but there was this gap, and no one caught it because no one was watching over the whole company. That was the story of what went wrong with AIG. From Congress, Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke was telling it, and we were all repeating it. For months, that story stuck. Until one day, Donald Cohn with the Federal Reserve, he's telling that story at a congressional hearing, no one in charge. A senator is dutifully asking follow-ups, and then they get interrupted. A hunched man peeking over his glasses, says, um, we were. We were in charge. We screwed up. I think Senator, may I make a comment? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there may be a slight difference of opinion, and uh, it's time for OTS to raise their hand and say we have some responsibility and accountability here. We were deemed an acceptable regulator for both U.S. domestic and international operations. It wasn't a huge apology, but there it was. Scott Polikoff, Interim Director of the Office of Thrift Supervision, OTS, saying, blame us. The OTS regulates thrifts and holding companies that own thrifts. Thrifts are the same thing as savings and loans. And this moment, you can tell watching the hearing that the congressmen, they're kind of taken aback. A few actually seem sort of incredulous. Senator Mel Martinez leans in. Uh, Mr. Polikoff, I wanted uh, Director Polkoff wanted to ask you, um, I, I was struck by your uh, acknowledgement that perhaps you are the regulator that we've been looking for. I think that uh, we had assumed that there wasn't one. If you could please en enlighten us and deepen a little bit on that comment. Yes, sir, Senator. I'll give it Rare a moment, by the way, to say, me. I'm the one. <laughs> I'm the one, sir. I'm going to go ahead and guess you've never heard of the Office of Thrift Supervision. A lot of regulation experts didn't know much about this agency until recently, like Patricia McCoy. She's a law professor at the University of Connecticut. 
someone who in her free time sits down with a pen and paper and does bank autopsies. She'll like research failed institutions, look at what went wrong, you know, for fun. So one night, McCoy, she's making this graph of major bank failures from 07 and 08. It was late at night. I tend to work late at night. I had filled in the asset sizes, and then I had to do a little research to see who the regulators were. And when I started typing in OTS, 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 I went, what happened at this agency? It's been flying under the radar, and we didn't notice. Which institutions were you seeing and naming, writing OTS in next to them? IndyMac, Washington Mutual, Downey Savings and Loan, NetBank. You might recognize some of those names. For instance, IndyMac, the most expensive bank failure of this crisis, regulated by the OTS. Second most expensive, Bank United, regulated by the OTS. The largest bank ever to fail, Washington Mutual, OTS. Other OTS claims to fame, Countrywide and AIG. I did call the Office of Thrift Supervision several times. They wouldn't talk to me about AIG. William Black used to work there back in the early 90s. He's a professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City now. And he says the idea that the OTS could ever go up against AIG, the world's largest insurance company, well. No contest. It's like the super heavyweight of the world going up against the 65-pound, 13-year-old class weakling, the one that keeps tripping over his feet walking down the hall. That was the OTS. That was the OTS. So how did the heavyweight end up with the puny 13-year-old? Two things, two crazy truths about our system of regulation. Number one, banks choose their regulators. If you're a national bank, you have four regulator choices. You go regulator shopping. Number two, if you're a regulator, you want to get picked because you get paid by the banks, the institutions you're supposed to regulate. The more banks you regulate, the more money you have. And the Office of Thrift Supervision, it was born at exactly the wrong time when it comes to these two things. It's 1989, the savings and loan crisis. Thrifts were dropping dead by the hundreds. But the OTS was the thrift regulator. It needed thrifts to pay for its budget. The OTS was losing revenue and losing revenue. And it was shrinking its staff, but it was losing revenue even faster than it was shrinking staff. So the staff feared that they would lose their jobs. And, of course, the bosses feared, why do they need an agency if there are fewer and fewer institutions? The OTS couldn't hold a press conference and say, hello, we're having a going out of business sale. We'll be the laxest regulator in town. Come on down and sign up. No. Instead, they went to industry meetings. They talked about the services they offered. They showed up at press conferences to make their presence known. Like this one time in June 2003, a bunch of federal regulators are getting together to announce a campaign to ease regulation, you know, cut through red tape. And James Gillerand, the head of the Office of Thrift Supervision, he shows up for the photo op. And here's what happened. Professors Patricia McCoy and William Black paint the picture. They were essentially standing in a horseshoe. Behind them is a banner that announces the new regulatory relief campaign. And they're all grinning broadly and poised over a stack of the federal regulations to demonstrate their intention to cut through all the federal regulations. 
the other federal regulators showed up at the press conference with garden shears. And each of them is holding up their instrument, uh, ready to clip. Very picturesque. Gillerin showed up with a chainsaw. The OTS guy is holding a chainsaw. Yes, and he's standing in front. Companies got the message. You needed a thrift to be regulated by the OTS. General Motors got one. Next couple years, so did GE, H&R Block, and a large insurance conglomerate called AIG. So the OTS was the chosen regulator, and the OTS messed up. I don't care who was the regulator. I don't think they would have caught this. This is Mike Roster. He's a veteran regulation lawyer. And he says, sure, you can dump on the OTS if you want. Many would like to see the agency abolished. But Roster says there are bigger fish, like Congress. Congress passed a law in 2000 that made it nearly impossible to regulate the derivatives that got AIG in so much trouble. Be angry at them, Roster says. Rating agencies gave AIG endless stamps of approval. Be angry at them. OTS, he says, that's just a footnote. And I hope we don't get uh, diverted to that sideshow. It's getting diverted to sideshows that unfortunately doesn't solve things. Last fall, Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson recommended getting rid of the OTS. President Obama is likely to recommend the same thing in the next couple weeks. So if that's a sideshow, I think we're likely to get diverted. And that's what we do. A crisis, it's our favorite time to throw another layer of regulation onto our already super complicated system. We had the Panic of 1907. It gave us the Federal Reserve. Then we had the Great Depression. The Great Depression gave us the FDIC. Then we had the SNL crisis. The SNL crisis gave us the Office of Thrift Supervision. And now, here we are. As an economist or an economics guru, a business uh, uh, guru, uh, somebody who, who really understands this stuff and the author of these books that just have analyzed our, brilliantly analyzed our economic situation, your thoughts on, on how uh, George Bush setting up TARP and his initial response and now Barack Obama in many ways following through on, on the Bush policies, um, you know, where is our economy at right now, where is it going to go, and what is, what are the consequences going to be of the types of intervention that we're seeing right now? Well, so far as I can see, the uh, the interventions are, I mean, we've actually become quite distracted in terms of a focus on how do we recover the economy, get it moving again. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, uh, you know, the, the my most recent book, Agenda for a New Economy, From Phantom Wealth to Real Wealth, I wrote it specifically because the of the of the focus on, 
restoring the economy to its essentially to its former uh, shape. Would give, you, me, give me give me that title. I'm sorry, I didn't have that in my list here. And uh, yeah, the, the title of that book, Agenda is, for a New Economy. From Phantom Wealth to Real Wealth. The tagline is why Wall Street can't be fixed and how to replace it. Okay. Now, I I wrote it. Let's get into that. Yeah, I wrote it because the... you know, the focus of, of the Bush response to the uh, uh, to the financial collapse was was based on recovery rather than recognizing that we, we have a fundamentally defective economic system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the design is wrong from the beginning. Uh, we've right. you know, we've we've created a society in which most everything we do depends on money. And then we've given over the control of creation and allocation of money to these Wall Street institutions that are basically organized as a crime syndicate engaged and of counterfeiting, uh, usury, uh, fraud, and uh, and extortion rackets. And they literally do create money. I think a lot of people think that the Fed creates money or that the Treasury creates money. The Treasury can print, can mint coins, but that's about it. Uh, the Fed prints our, our dollars. But with a fractional reserve banking system, the way that money is created is by is by debt. Every time a debt is every time a loan is written, literally money is created out of thin air. Yes, this is this is a key to understanding the uh, uh, the existing system, and it's one of the reasons for the incredible instability and the incredible power that we give to private banks to essentially control the economy. Right. Now, um, one of the things that I became very conscious of as as we look into this is that that most of Wall Street's activity is, is focused on creating what I call phantom wealth. It's, it's, it is about creating money out of nothing and not channeling it into the productive activities of Main Street, where we're producing right. real goods and services for people, but rather channeling it into all kinds of very complicated systems of, uh, of financial speculation, the creation of financial bubbles, derivatives. You know, and, and one of the things I realized in this book is in rather trying to unravel how do all of those scams work, the bottom line is that it is a it, it 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 is a system that is devoted to creating as much money as possible, which is phantom wealth. It's simply numbers that have no reality uh, to give more and more power, not even to the shareholders in Wall Street so much as to the managers, the mm. the CEOs, the uh, uh, the heads of the banks, and, and the top money managers. And this is, you know, this is the starting point of recognizing the need to essentially, sh- you know, shut down Wall Street as we know it, create a whole new financial system that is designed to meet the needs of uh, of Main Street businesses and Main Street people, and one where 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 money actually represents wealth. That is, it represents actual goods and services rather than. Just, yeah. just kind of magic stuff that Wall Street creates. What's in the last hour? I had a caller about the Fed, and and my point was that the Fed, um, Ellen Brown, very eloquently oh. has been arguing for some time that that the Treasury Department should simply buy the Fed from or acquire the Fed, seize the Fed from the twelve Federal Reserve banks, let them become simply private banks, and we should start minting our own money as North Dakota does. We have one state that does this. And uh, and they have been doing that for a century and providing, you know, three three percent loans to farmers, which is how that why they were institutionalized in the first place, with no problem ever. Uh, your thoughts on on the Fed and their role in all this? 
Well, the basic uh, the basic idea that we need to move from a system in which uh, most of our money is created by private banks lending it into existence to a system where banks serve the function that I you know I learned that what was taught when I was in business school was that banks are intermediaries that they take in deposits from their uh, uh, from people that have savings and then they lend the lend those out to people in the community. Well, that's the theory. That's the theory. Yeah, <laughs> and that and that's the way it should work for the last and, couple and, thousand years. Yeah, you know, when we need money into circulation, it should be issued uh, by government, and I think uh, you know, preferably spent into existence to fund infrastructure, fund education, fund things that are actually building the uh, the social and real physical capital of the uh, of the society, which are really foundations of continued uh, real wealth creation. Right. Uh, certainly, rather than banks lending it into existence for uh, for purely private gain of the banks. What do you think we're talking? Talking with David Corton, his website David Corton K O R T E N dot org, and uh, David, the title of your most recent book, "Agenda for a New Economy: From Phantom Wealth to Real Wealth." And uh, it seems to me, you know, that uh, Ellen Brown's suggestion, for example, that we federalize the Fed, uh, your suggestions that we change the way that that uh, you know we're we're dealing with money. Yeah, it's the same. It's lot. essentially the same thing. It's just right. a question of how you do it, and I'm, right. I'm less concerned about specifically how we do it than the fact that we well, need to do it. I, you know, my question is, how do you do it? I mean, I, all of a sudden, just you know, snapping your fingers and say we're going to that ain't going to happen. I'm hearing. I mean, we've got an administration right now that is is basically continuing Bush economic policies rather than going back to FDR economic policies, much less Teddy Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln economic policies. Uh, he actually issued currency, federal currency, the greenback, and, and and seized some of those federal bank functions. And it worked quite well for a while. And then he was assassinated. And so how do we do this? Well, the first thing is we have to we have to start the conversation. Um, yeah. I mean, it's clear that, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I have no idea what what Obama's intentions were as he came in. I have no idea to what extent he understands the problem. But uh he is obviously under enormous political pressure from from Wall Street. Uh, you know, I, I I think of it. He's got so many issues on his plate. It's sort of like the old saying: when you're when you're up to your neck in alligators, it's hard to remember that you came to drain the swamp. Yeah. And uh, but uh, he's embraced some of those alligators. I mean, he's got Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, and he absolutely has. And I, I find that extremely disappointing. And as you say, his policies, particularly in relation to Wall Street, are almost identical to the Bush administration. Uh, now, What's that going to lead us to? Well, it's going to lead us to if, you know, if they pump in enough money to uh, revive the banking system temporarily, it will simply get back into its old mode and it will collapse again. Right. Uh, it's where they're just reinflating the bubble. They're reinflating the bubble and, and they're creating an you know, enormous. And when uh, it collapses again, we could see something that really does look like the Great Depression. I mean, yes. it's, it's hell on wheels out there right now, but it could right. get a whole lot worse. But the thing that is so important is that. Is the kind of thing that you're doing on your show. Every the the kind of deep change that we need starts with a conversation. And as long as most people think that government prints money, have no understanding of this issue, then it becomes almost impossible for for President Obama to uh, to take the kinds of initiatives that are necessary because nobody's going to understand it. Right. Uh, we, we've got to have the conversation.
the president of Euro Pacific Capital, and he is also the author of Crash Proof, How to Profit from the Coming Economic Collapse. Please welcome Peter Schiff. You, sir, I have been uh, watching you on television for many years now. And uh, you have a very uh, uh, similar refrain over the years. You believed that the fundamentals of the economy were not sound. And you felt that we were going to enter some type of recession. Correct. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have clips of you, sir. Now, I hate to sound prosecutorial. <laughs> but it's actually, it's, here's what's wild. We do have, we've compiled some clips from CNBC. This is all their people like laughing and yelling at you while you're being right. Here, take, take, take a look. Take a look at right, yes. The people have in real estate are going to vanish, just like the profits in the, in the, in the dot coms in 1999-2000. It's a fantasy. People can't sell their house. The U.S. economy is on the verge of a massive recession. The worst is yet to come. The fundamentals are not sound. They're awful. This is going to be an enormous credit crunch. The party is over for the United States. It's not just subprime. It's the entire mortgage market. Right? Every, All right. Well, Tracy, you're, you're disagreeing. You're simply wrong. Well, point. you're simply wrong about that. No, I'm not. <laughs> and guess what? You're not. You're right. And the people cheer. By the way, very rarely does someone say we're headed for an economic collapse and the crowd goes, yes! <laughs> How did you, what was it that you saw that others missed? Well, you know, I think everybody else was, was drunk on the government Kool-Aid. You know, I was just thinking clearly. You know, I had my faculties with me, and I understood the, the fundamental problems with the economy. And unfortunately, they're getting worse, not better. You know, the reason the economy is in so much trouble is because of all the prior government stimulus. You know, they're the ones that got us all drunk and got us all leveraged up with mm -hmm. their low interest rates. And now, you know, Barack Obama and Bernanke are doing exactly what Bush and Greenspan did, only worse. But why are they doing that then? Why, why isn't there a designated driver? Why, why are they all still, still making moonshine and making everyone drink it? The, the, it? Somehow they keep saying now, hey man, we've come through it, everything has stabilized, but I cannot see what has changed. What seems different? Nothing has changed. I think the reason they want everybody drunk is they think they got a better chance of getting reelected that way. But, you know, if, if the people understood how much trouble the country really was in, they might actually blame some of the people that, that helped create this problem, which are the people in Washington and a lot of the people on Wall Street. What should we have done? Because uh, what the government did is say, okay, you have a lot of bad assets, so we're, and, and your mismanagement has created this issue, so we're going to give you billions of dollars and then come back to us. No, what we should have done is let all the institutions that made bad investments fail. They're too big to fail. No, no they're not. No, they're, they're too big. <laughs> that's, they're too big to bail out. We need to let them fail. The economy would actually benefit from a lot of these bankruptcies. Now we're suffering from all the bailouts. And unfortunately, we need to allow the economy to restructure. The problem is too many Americans bought too much stuff that they couldn't afford with money they didn't have. And we have to go back to a basic economy where the economy grows based on underconsumption, based on savings. We have to produce more and consume less. And we could have but this. But all we have is our consuming. That We don't have a manufacturing base <laughs> well, anymore. That's the problem. We don't make anything. We don't do anything. Well, All we do is buy stuff. You take that away from us, and we're Poland. But, well, it's going to be taken away from us because we're buying stuff with money from the Chinese, from the Japanese. They're not going to keep lending us money that we can't pay back. What we have to do is, if we really want to consume, we have to start making stuff again because pretty soon, you know, people think it's bad when your house loses value 
Where do you see how bad it is when the money loses value and we can't buy anything? You're saying that the answer to the credit crunch was not making new credit cards that you could pick a picture to put on. No. You're saying no. being able to put your team logo on your credit card doesn't do it. The credit crunch is part of the solution. The problem was all the reckless credit that preceded it. You know, when Barack Obama says that credit is the lifeblood of the economy, and he's talking about consumer credit, it's not the lifeblood. It's the cancer. Now, why, why is it that... You know, we have become a credit-based economy, and why is it that we've allowed the financial sector to become such a large portion of our well, economy? Well, that's because seems... of the Federal Reserve. I mean, the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates artificially low, and that has encouraged reckless consumption and reckless borrowing. If the Fed would get out of the way and let the market set interest rates, interest rates would have been a lot higher all along, and higher interest rates would have discouraged borrowing, and it would have rewarded savings, and we would have had a much more balanced economy. We wouldn't have had a stock market bubble. We wouldn't have had a real estate bubble, and right, we wouldn't but, be in this mess. It, it, on the other side of this, and let me play devil's advocate, uh, episodes of Cribs would have been really lame. <laughs> you know, if, I, if I'm watching... Uh, uh, I guess that's the trade-off. If, if I'm watching 50 Cent go out in his driveway and he's, you know, he's got a Vega and maybe like a bicycle, you know. <laughs> You're worried about hyperinflation, but isn't there something to, to the, the soft landing? If all these places went bankrupt, what about consumers? What about the blue-collar guys that are out there that would be really suffering because of something that they couldn't control. How do, how do we prevent well, them from... Unfortunately, they're suffering the most now. They're the ones that are going to get stuck with the bill for the bailouts and the stimulus. It's, the guys on Wall Street are being protected. Massive inflation, which is what we're going to get, we're just going to destroy the value of our money. That's going to wipe out the savings of average Americans and destroy the value of their wages. Meanwhile, by propping up all the industries and the companies that need to fail, right. we're preventing companies that can expand from growing and hiring those people. Well, I don't know. I mean, hyperinflation worked out for the Weimar Republic. I can't imagine. <laughs> it's uh, not working out. Is, it, is, is, there, is there a saving grace here? Is there a, a silver lining? Is there something that can be done? Or do you feel like you're literally just watching us driving off a cliff? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, we have, to, we have to change the path. You know, Barack Obama talked about the fact that when you're driving towards a cliff, you need to change directions. The problem is all he did is step on the gas. And, and keep it, going. Yeah, I mean, if we could actually change. You know, he ran on a platform of change. If we could actually get change instead of more of the same, then maybe we'd have a chance. Are you running for office? <laughs> Are you running? Is that true? <laughs> no, what would you run for? What uh, office would you? Well, I, I am considering potentially running for the Senate in my home state of Connecticut. The nutmeg state. Well, good luck to you, sir. You'd be up against Dodd. You going up against Dodd? Well, that's, that, that's the most attractive part of running. It's to be going up against Dodd? Well, to send him home. He's, he's been living in the Senate his whole life. He thinks, he thinks he's in the House of Lords. Listen, he's, he's got a very nice house. I happen to know he got a good deal on his mortgage as well. So. Yeah, I think the guy that gave him that deal was just indicted. So. That's <laughs> Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Crash Proof is on the bookshelf. Now, sir, I congratulate you for, for going out there in the face of, of much uh, yelling at you and sticking to your guns about what you thought was going to happen. And unfortunately, it came to pass. And I hope uh, you're not right about hyperinflation, but it's well, very happy to have you on the thanks, show. Thanks, and I'm still out there. All right, son. Peter Schiff.
so let's get to the, the article uh, that you wrote here, Stuff the Bankers, Starve the Kids. Yeah. Um, what, are, what are we doing here with the bankers that you think is so misdirected? Uh, it, and, and, you know, whether it's the Obama administration plan or however uh, back it goes. Well, my, I'm very disappointed in, in this aspect of the Obama administration. I mean, I supported him, and I gave money hours before the election because I was worried he would lose. And, uh, you know, I still think the guy's got a, a great brain and a great attitude on a whole number of things. But on the key issue of how to deal with the economic meltdown, he turned to the very people who created this problem who were in the Clinton administration. You know, Lawrence Summers and Timothy Geithner, who was in a lower-level position, but nonetheless was a protege of Robert Rubin, the first uh, who had been the Secretary of Treasury. And they're the people who pushed through uh, the deregulation of, of the financial industry, the Financial Services Modernization Act, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, which ended any control over the financial community. And then where did Robert Rubin go? He went to, to run Citigroup, a company that benefited, the first big company to benefit from that deregulation. And we know Citigroup went into the toilet while Rubin was running it. And yet Rubin was instrumental in the Obama campaign in picking who should be the team. He picks his protege, Lawrence Summers. He picks Timothy Geithner. And what these guys have done is, is I think, outrageous. And it's really going to, I, I think it could really destroy the Obama uh, legacy uh, because what, what they're doing is, you know, spending trillions of dollars to, ma to make the banks whole, and we're going to have to pay for that for the rest of our lives, and, uh, and they're not uh, solving the problems of ordinary people. They could have gone on the other end. They could have had a freeze on foreclosures. They could have uh, eased consumer uh, debt. They could have done lots of things of that sort. And instead, they just threw the money at the banks, and the money is being wasted. We're not getting any increased liquidity. Uh, we're not getting jobs created. And uh, so that's the reason I wrote this column about California, I think it's absolutely outrageous that the uh, Obama administration would say, no, we can't bail out California, which needs $21 billion, you know, uh, and jobs are at stake, uh, but we can throw very much larger amounts of money at the banks. So, yeah, that's what I'm objecting to. So they, you think that the people have taken the wrong lessons with what happened with the California uh, propositions out here. The conservatives are saying, see, uh, even the people of California, that very liberal state, are tired of being taxed, and that's why they didn't go along with these plans. And uh, now California has to deal with it on their own for the mess that they created because they overspent. So let's knock down a couple of those things. Ever. Well, it's all garbage, first of all. I mean, this was not some big voter revolt. It was a very low turnout election. I, frankly, I was um, I was trying to scrounge up a ticket, which I succeeded to the Laker game, and I almost didn't vote. I forgot it was an election day. I got almost no literature on it, and then uh, my wife called and told me one of my sons, who's kind of a libertarian, had voted against all these things. I said, well, I better go balance his vote, and I went, and there wasn't anybody else in the polling station, and I think uh, he turned out to be right. I don't think there was any reason to vote for these things. They didn't solve any of the problems. The amount of money of the actual initiatives was about $6 billion, which is nothing, and it wasn't going to any of the real uh, needs of the state. It wasn't going to guarantee any money for the school. 
schools or people who are thrown out of work. And I think it was, as I said in the column, it was a bit of a political practical joke that uh, Schwarzenegger uh, did with some leading Democrats to make it sound like they were doing something about what I think is a very small shortfall, by the way, uh, $21 billion. You know, as I say, we, we've given uh, Citigroup uh, $45 billion, and we've guaranteed another $300 billion uh, of their toxic assets. We've given AIG $185 billion. Here's the great state of California, which spends a lot more money on federal taxes, paying to the federal government than it ever gets back, uh, as opposed to some of these conservative states. And, and the government can't guarantee $21 billion of our loans. That's really all that was involved here, just a government uh, a guarantee on $21 billion. And so, yeah, I, don't, I think the ballot initiatives didn't deal with it. I don't think California's problems have anything to do with Prop 13 or that we need two-thirds of a vote or any of that sort of thing. Those problems exist. Every state has problems. But th this is a national crisis brought about by these stupid deregulation policies that allowed – they gave the banks a license to steal. They gave Wall Street a license to steal. And they conned people into all kinds of mortgages and other things that they couldn't afford. And they packaged them as securities, and they, uh, you know, sold them, and they built this huge market out of this. And then it, it, it the bubble burst, and and it has, you know, and all of the states are left holding the, the bag. And and the solution has to come from the federal government. It can't come from state initiatives. And the problem is because of Clinton, who did his damn welfare reform, and you know, uh, and and put the basic federal poverty program. We don't have a federal poverty program transferred it, devolved it to the states, now people are really hurting in every state, not just California. They're really hurting. Uh, um, and and by the, what we mean by the poor, many people who used to think they were middle class quite recently, but they've now lost their jobs. And we find that that safety net is being shredded. And and so my whole point of my column is, you know, if the federal government can't come up with $21 billion to prevent California from laying off teachers and, you know, cutting health care for kids and doing all the things that they're, they're Schwarzenegger is threatening to do, there's something wrong with that picture. All right, uh, Robert, let me ask you, and we're talking to Robert Shear from editor-in-chief of uh, truthdig.com. You know, I keep coming back to the same question, uh, which is what is Obama's motivation here? Because as Bill Bradley pointed out, and I talked about earlier in the show, $17 billion is the market cap right now for Citigroup. Uh, but we've poured in two to three times that amount into Citigroup already. So why don't we already own it if it's only worth $17 billion, let alone the hundreds of billions of dollars in loans that we've guaranteed over there? Yeah. Uh, so what's his motivation here? Why, why does he want to continue these failed banks where they continue to take money out the back door? Because uh, there, there are two Obamas. There's a, a, the Obama that many of us voted for, who had the experience of living in, and organizing in Chicago, and before that had a very normal life in Honolulu. I went and visited the area where he grew up and everything. This guy knew what real life was all about. And, uh, you know, that's the one we wanted. And then there's the uh, Obama, who's influenced by the best and the brightest of Harvard, you know, and, and these people uh, who, who are up to their eyeballs in this whole Wall Street financial thing told them, no, you have to reassure the markets. This stuff is very complex. No, and the reason 
it so complex is that they have designed it to be so opaque and complex you can't figure it out. And uh, and he said, look, if you don't give the market, they said, if you don't give the markets the assurance they need now, we're going to have big trouble. So they basically blackmailed him, and he fell for the blackmail. And I, I think it's very sad. Well, uh, isn't he bright enough to figure out, yeah, I get it, it's complicated, but I'm not stupid. I was editor of the Harvard Law Review. Explain yeah, but it wasn't, you know, the whole thing is economics has become a, a trap for the mind. It's not really, it doesn't enlighten. And he didn't have that background. He's not strong on the economic stuff. And these guys are, are incredibly intimidating. I know I'm doing a book for Nation Books right now on the great American stick-up, you know, greedy bankers and the politicians who love them. I was at those hearings when the deregulation was passed. I was covering it for the paper. And let me tell you, these people have very bright people around and they're lobbyists. The people, they wrote the legislation. And, and they throw these acronyms around, these terms, these concepts, these mathematical models, and you don't know which end is. That's by design. It's by design to make it opaque, and you don't know what's what's in these bundles, what these in these trenches, what's what what, what they're selling, uh, you know, who gets hurt and who benefits and so forth. It's all disguised, and, and uh, that's their profession. It, 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 this is not the old economics where you told people what the social impact was and you know how actual human beings were going to be affected by it. No, you, and what they're doing now is they're they're saying if we don't if you don't bail us out, we're going to collapse the whole thing. You know. Now my question is, first of all, I don't buy it. I don't see why Citigroup can't be allowed to go bankrupt. I don't I don't get it. Uh, why can't they be allowed to go out of business? Lehman Brothers was allowed to go out of business. You know, uh, uh, Citigroup got too big to fail by their own design. They were an illegal organization by the old rules, okay? Uh, Citigroup was the main group lobbying for the deregulation because they wanted, was the old uh, uh, Citicorp wanted to make a, a takeover of travelers insurance. And they wanted to break the old class Siegel uh, restrictions on investment, commercial bank, insurance companies, and so forth. They got the legislation that they and the other Wall Street titans lobbied for, and they made themselves so huge. And then they don't, they're going to collapse. Well, let them collapse. Yeah, well, and, Robert, and that's I, a, a I, risk that these guys say you can't take, okay? They yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you there. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We'd love to have you back on another time as well. Thank you so much for joining okay, us. Bye. Really appreciate it. And he's ultimately very right about that. Just let them go into receivership. You're not going to want to miss what we have available at the brand new Best of the Left store. You can get all of our great designs, including some cool retro ones that no one's ever seen before, on all kinds of great cafe press apparel and other fun items they have available. If you prefer a cafe press alternative, we got you covered. Check out everything we have available at our Print Fection store. Aside from all that fun stuff, we've got something really useful for you. We've just started a brand new podcast by mail service. So say you know someone, maybe even yourself, who loves this show or would love it, but they're just not tech savvy enough to do the whole podcasting thing. They couldn't download it every week, not going to listen online. Give them a podcast by mail subscription and they'll have the CDs of every edition sent right to their house every week. All this now available at the new store at bestoftheleft.com.
The recession forces the U.S. to dip into Guam. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Ongoing problems with the economy have left the United States no other choice but to reluctantly hit up Guam, a U.S. territory long considered America's backup plan. Administration officials are promising not to use up the island nation entirely, but White House aide Benjamin Pickett told reporters the time has come to see what's in Guam's piggy bank. It's always good to know that Guam is there if we need it. Two months ago, the U.S. Treasury collected nearly $475,000 in insurance money after losing American Samoa in what many called a highly suspicious fire. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Today's story is called Crazy Eddie's House Sale. Home sellers should offer price protection the way many electronic retailers do. And it's written by Ian Ayers and Daniel Markovitz. The housing market now faces a dilemma long familiar to makers of computers or flat-screen TVs. Prices are dropping so fast that many buyers may be scared off. Home prices have fallen by more than 30% since their peak in mid-2006. And although the decline is slowing, they continue to fall. Why buy a house now, many buyers think, if they can get the same house in six months or a year for substantially less? No one wants to catch a falling knife. Above all, the market needs stability. And stability can be achieved without adding a penny to the ballooning federal deficit. Like their counterparts in the consumer electronics industry, home sellers can reassure skittish buyers by offering a price guarantee. If this house is worth less than you paid for it in a year, I'll refund the difference. Why would sellers ever agree to such an arrangement? For starters, it may help them sell their homes, and it wouldn't necessarily cost them very much. Sellers could commit to reimbursing their buyers for any fall in the average value of homes in their area in the year following a sale. Such price protection would give buyers confidence that they won't regret their purchases, even if the market does fall further and cheaper houses come on offer, confidence that they need in order to buy now. And if buyers gain confidence, prices won't fall, so sellers won't have to pay. In order to bolster this confidence, the government should make it easier for sellers to set up price protection escrow accounts, which would allow sellers to retain the risk that housing prices might fall after a sale is made. Here's how it would work. At the time of closing, 10% of the purchase price might be placed in escrow for 12 months, with the remaining 90% going to the seller. If the median sales price in the city falls in the 12 months after the sale, 
then the drop-in value would be returned from the escrow account to the buyer, with any remainder in the account being released to the seller. If housing prices don't fall, or go up, the seller would recover all of the escrow. The buyer in this case will take comfort in the knowledge that he did not overpay. Escrow agreements aren't free, because escrow agents, the third parties that hold the money during the escrow period, need to be compensated for their trouble. But a standardized, plain vanilla price protection escrow should not cost more than a few hundred dollars, a small price to pay for inducing buyers to re-enter the housing market. And it's natural for sellers to provide the insurance that price protection involves. If they can't sell their houses, they're going to end up bearing the house price risk anyway. Price protection escrow can also provide buyers with much-needed insurance without having to face the difficult question of how to measure and price housing market risk. The key to price protection is to agree on a definitive, non-discretionary real estate index that the escrow agent can look to in divvying up the escrow cash after 12 months. The escrow formula doesn't need to take on the difficult task of assessing the value of the particular property. The new buyer should retain incentives to maintain and improve her own house's value. All that's needed is a measure of how housing prices in the area are faring. The measure needn't be perfect in order to work, and if there are too few sales on a particular block or street, the price benchmark might refer to a zip code or even a whole town. In most cases, the median sale price, or even the Zillow.com estimate of a house value, which similarly turns on comparable sales in the area, will be more than sufficient. Finally, price protection escrows need not cost the general public a penny. They can be adopted by private parties by themselves. Of course, a gentle government nudge might help private parties take advantage of the benefits that these arrangements provide and in this way try to bring stability to the broader housing market. To this end, the government might develop standardized escrow forms or require real estate agents to offer buyers and sellers the option of including price protection in their contracts. To be sure, price protection escrows aren't feasible for all sales. If the sellers don't have much equity built up in their homes, they'll need all of the buyer's money at closing merely to pay off their existing mortgages. And some sellers will need the equity to make the down payment on their next house. But these are details that could easily be worked out between buyer and seller. In most cases, with price protection escrow, everybody wins. Buyers get to move in, sellers get to move on, and the rest of us benefit from a more stable housing market and maybe a more stable economy, too. Money don't make I'm reaching out for the higher ground To a warm and peaceful place I can rest my weary face Life sensors we try to find Oh, we try to find, yes, we try to find Right 
is capitalist columnist for Time Magazine. His new book is called The Myth of the Rational Market, The History of Risk, Reward, and Delusion on Wall Street. Please welcome to the program, Justin Fox. Sir. How are you? Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, uh, your suggestion is that the financial markets are not rational. Are you suggesting, sir, may I call you sir? You that, may. that houses in Florida really don't double in value every year? Yeah, I'm saying that. What? But now everybody's saying that. When I started, I started writing the book years ago, um, and it was less obvious. Well, it seemed pretty obvious then, too, but whatever. Why is it that we don't recognize the irrationality of it? Is it because the people in charge of keeping an eye on it uh, work there or are paid from there? What, how, why, how do we screw this up? I think part of it is when prices for assets, be they stocks in the late 90s or houses, when they go up like that, it's fun for lots of people. It's, it's a great deal. And, and so there is just this societal tendency to not like the people who say, whoa, that, that can't continue. The story in my book is also the story of this intellectual movement that kind of came out of the University of Chicago and to a lesser extent MIT in the 60s that sort of gave this whole theory of why markets were in fact rational. And, and because those people were so smart, exactly, they thought they didn't. They forgot that many of the people maybe working in these markets weren't so smart, or or just that. I mean, in a lot of times, it's actually lots of really rational, smart people all working together in vast herds can create delusionally. Yeah, it's like a Jimmy Buffett concert. <laughs> I've never been, but okay. Oh, you, you meet the people individually, very nice. You get them all together and they parrot put on the heads, parrot hats yeah. and you're like, I'm not investing with you idiots. No, I'm not. What can be, it, it, so in your mind, is this then a failure of regulation? If the market is not rational, who is rational? How do we, how do we bring a rational force to bear on this irrational monster. Well, the obvious difficulty is regulators get caught up in the same nonsense as markets do. And I think Alan Greenspan was sort of this classic case of somebody who knew that markets weren't, you know, had bubbles, went crazy, but basically decided to go along with it and thought it'll, it'll all work out in the end. But he, I, didn't he admit he was wrong? He came out and said, yes. I made one assumption that was uh, wrong, I misunderstood people's ability to, to regulate themselves. I thought Market's people, ability to regulate right. themselves. Yeah, and I, so part of it is it clearly points to, yeah, we probably do need regulation in financial markets. And the kind of regulation, I, I do wonder, relying too much on regulators to be perfectly smart is kind of problematic. So maybe what we need are just some simple kind of dumb rules, which is what we got in the 30s. And in retrospect, a lot of these rules didn't quite make sense, like the Glass-Steagall separating banks right. and all that. But now I think a lot of people are starting to look and, well, maybe they weren't perfect, but at least they slowed things down a little. But isn't it the whole idea that we have a free market, isn't that in itself a lie? And we, we had Greenspan on, and I, and I mentioned to him, do we really have a free market? And he kind of like was like, ah, no. But anyway, right. our free market system. <laughs> it, so... What if we did just have an, a free market? Would it be the Wild West? Would, it, would we go back to the 1900s where the company then owned the town you live in and also the store and there'd be no, you know, what would be the repercussions of an actual free market? I, I mean, there, there's a definitely an element now in American intellectual life, minority but getting a lot of attention, who are sort of saying, oh, if only we didn't have all of this government interference, things would be better. You look back at the 19th century and we had these 
bubbles and crashes all the time, like every 10 or 15 years. Right. And because they were more frequent, they were perhaps less shocking and maybe in some way less damaging, but you also had less of a financial system. So have we, so, have we forgotten the lessons then of uh, the 19th century, the early 1900s? Is that why... Well, we were repealing that, it's, it, it's those things are why we ended up getting financial regulation. I think we're going to have financial regulation. We're not going to go back to the Wild West. So the question is, how do you do it right? And it, and it seems and like... Not, and not become socialists. Because if we become socialists, then, we all then die, America, yeah. as we know, ends exactly. it uh, today. It's over. And babies are born with frosting. The whole thing. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. It's a freak show. Instead, we get them with high heels. Whatever so. they get. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's true. So we're already basically a social democracy. It's just a question of where government regulates and, and what they do and, and right. how they distribute it. And, and the best way to do it is to, to, to do it in a way that almost human proofs it. Is that, is that more the suggestion? Yeah, and we're never going to get it perfectly right. And the future John Stewart and the future Justin what? Fox will be having a similar conversation. In what do you years. know? <laughs> Have you been sent here from the future? No. Is, it, is the stimulus package doing guess. anything, or is this all just a little shell game? Is, this, is any of this stuff working? Is there theory behind it, or is it just making us feel better? Well, one of the worse? fascinating things with the stimulus package is economists have spent the last 40 or 50 years making prettier and prettier theories using more and more math and almost none of them none of that tells you anything about what kind of stimulus package to do basically all people are doing is looking back at the 30s and then what happened in world war ii when suddenly the government was spending vastly more than it was taking in and everything got better so they thought they'd try it again i think we know the answer there war world war well we're trying to do it without the world war just with the spending but Let's we'll hope see. so the myth of the rational market is on the bookshelves now Thank you for coming by. Justin Fox. Pardon me, everyone, and let me just expound for a moment on the virtues and benefits of a Best of the Left membership. First of all, it's the members that are helping to support this show and keeping it going strong twice a week. Without their support, the production schedule would absolutely have to be cut back. So you have those to thank who are willing to pay as little as $5 a month for the sheer volume of content that you're receiving in the podcast. On top of that, members also receive the Best of the Left raw feed. This feed contains all of the clips that end up in the show, as well as some that don't make the final cut. And those clips that originally come from television or some other video source are delivered in their original video format. To become a member, simply go to the website at bestoftheleft.com and click the membership tab. Thanks so much for your support. The Obama administration came to power promising change. One of the things that's changing is the way economists and the government think about individuals. There's a whole group of people appointed by President Obama that believes the human brain is hardwired to make serious errors in judgment. And that means people need to be helped to make decisions in their own best interest. That's not the way economists have traditionally viewed human behavior. NPR's Elise Spiegel has our story about the origins of these new economic ideas and what they might mean for policy. In the city of Greensboro, North Carolina, there's a program designed for teenage mothers, girls who already have one baby. To prevent these women from having another child, the city offers them a dollar a day for every day they're not pregnant. 
Apparently, the psychological power of that small daily payment is huge. A single dollar a day is somehow enough to push the rate of teen pregnancy down, and with it, all the incredible costs, human and financial, that go with teen parenting. Now, this program has been promoted by Cass Sunstein, President Obama's pick to head the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Sunstein likes it because it's an economic policy that shapes itself around human psychology. You see, Sunstein, like a number of other high-level appointees now working in the administration, is a devotee of behavioral economics, a school of economic thought greatly influenced by psychological research that took a good hard look at the human animal and found that people have a lot of trouble making decisions. Daniel Kahneman, one of the psychologists credited with creating behavioral economics, explains. People are highly suggestible. It's very easy to put things in their mind. They're certainly not coherent. They're certainly very lazy. And those are discoveries that were made by psychologists and were later put to work by behavior economists. Kahneman came to his work in decision-making pretty much by accident in 1955 when he was working as a psychologist in the Israeli army. You see, Kahneman's primary job in the army, the thing he did day in, day out, was to try to figure out which of his fellow soldiers might make good officers. To do this, Kahneman ran the men through a really unusual exercise. He'd organize them into groups of eight, then tell them to lift an enormous telephone pole over a six-foot wall. We could see who was a leader, who was taking charge. and We could see who was a quitter, who gave up. And we thought that what we saw before us is how they would behave in combat. Kahneman and his fellow psychologists, certain of their wisdom, would then make recommendations. The chosen would go off to officer school, and Kahneman would move to the next batch. There was only one tiny problem. It turned out that there was absolutely no relationship between what we saw and, and what people saw who examined them for six months in officer training school. But here's the really remarkable thing. Despite negative feedback from the school, Kahneman's faith in his own ability was unshaken. The next day, after getting those statistics, we put them there in front of the wall, gave them a telephone pole, and we were just as convinced as ever that we knew what kind of officers they were going to be. It's a problem, says Kahneman, that afflicts us all. People have a huge amount of confidence in their own judgment, even in the face of evidence that their judgment is wrong. That mistake is just one of the many cognitive errors identified by Kahneman and his frequent collaborator, the psychologist Amos Tversky. For over a decade, the two worked together, cataloging the ways that the human mind systematically misjudges the world around it. Turns out that we're not very good at processing information or making calculations. And as a consequence, they found, the decisions we make often don't serve our best interests. Now, in the realm of academic psychology, this isn't much of a revelation. Psychologists see people as flawed in all kinds of ways. So had the ideas of Kahneman and Tversky simply stayed in psychology, there wouldn't be much of a story to tell. But the ideas of Kahneman and Tversky didn't just stay in the realm of academic psychology. They jumped. Jumped to economics. Here's the economist Richard Thaler. I met a psychologist who introduced me to the work of Kahneman and Tversky. And uh, once I read their work, I got very excited. Thaler's a professor at the University of Chicago, and together with Kahneman and Tversky, he's credited with creating behavioral economics. When Thaler first came across the work of Kahneman and Tversky, he was just barely out of graduate school, a new professor, but Thaler wanted to work with them. And so the young economist contrived a way to put himself in their path. I heard they were planning to spend a year at Stanford, so I made it my business to go and spend a year at Stanford at the same time. 
I remember Dick showing up to my office, and he presented himself. And our friendship, I think, started immediately and has gone on to this day. For a year, Kahneman, Thaler, and Tversky walked the hills of Stanford. Kahneman and Tversky taught Thaler about psychology. Thaler, in turn, taught them about economics. In the early 80s, they began to publish their ideas, an integration of psychological research and economics. The reception from mainstream economists? Not so good. Oh, it wasn't very friendly. You know, economists are not known for humility, so uh, they didn't feel they needed much psychology. The main point of contention, says Thaler, was the suggestion that humans are less than perfectly rational when it comes to decision-making. For the majority of the 20th century, and for the most part even today, the human beings imagined by economists and placed at the center of their economic models have always had a Mr. Spock-like rationality. Economists literally assume that the agents in the economy are as smart as the smartest economist. And not just smart, but also paragons of self-control. We're not overweight, we never overdrink, and we save just the right amount for retirement. And, of course, the people we know aren't like that. So why would economists take this view of the human animal? Because using rational humans in their mathematical models worked. Also, says Ed Glazer, a professor of economics at Harvard University. Behavioral economics has identified a dizzying array of human foibles. We clearly can't incorporate all of them. And because of that, people often feel that incorporating one error into your model may be just as unrealistic as incorporating none. But there's probably another reason for this resistance from economists. An imperfectly rational human being challenges in a pretty fundamental way a really important idea. The notion that markets work well because individuals can be counted on to make the best choice for themselves. Here's Kahneman. Merely accepting the fact that people do not necessarily make the best decision for themselves is politically very explosive. The moment you admit that, you have to start protecting people. In other words, if it is the case that the human brain as a piece of machinery is hardwired to make serious errors, that implies all kinds of things about the need for regulation and protection. Last year, Thaler actually wrote a book about this called Nudge with Cass Sunstein, the man recently appointed by President Obama. The book proposed that, for example, if you want people to save for retirement, it's important to take account of the fact that people are easily overwhelmed by information and so are likely to simply opt for the status quo. The lesson for policymakers, says Thaler, is... If you want people to enroll in the pension plan, then automatically enroll them and let them opt out if they want to. But critics like Ed Glazer of Harvard are worried. Glazer and many Republican critics believe that our current economic predicament is the product of government intervening in the markets, intervening in a way that distorted incentives. And he says that, if anything, the current crisis is proof that the Obama administration has drawn just the wrong conclusions from Kahneman and Thaler's work. Just understanding that human beings don't make perfect decisions does not make the case for government by any stretch of the imagination, because, after all, governments are made up of people, too. But Thaler argues government policymakers don't need to be hyper-rational to help people make better choices. He offers this example. Any American who goes to London realizes that they are endangering their lives every time they cross the street because the traffic comes from the wrong direction. Someone in the government in London had the clever idea of riding on the sidewalk in busy intersections full of tourists from America and Europe, a sign that says, look right. So British bureaucrats are no smarter than American bureaucrats, 
but they know that tourists tend to look the wrong way and they could use a helpful nudge to avoid getting hit by a truck. The Obama administration believes it is shaping policy in a way that will keep us all from getting hit by trucks. Healthcare trucks, financial trucks, trucks that come from every direction and affect every aspect of our lives. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, I just wanted to mention, if you like follow the show on Twitter or your friend on Facebook, it's possible that you saw this. But I just wanted to say to the rest of you that today, like I was editing the shows for the week, and this feeling came over me, and I just realized I love making this show. And so what I, I thought that and then tweeted it out, and so it went out, uh, out onto Twitter and Facebook, and... And I just said, you know, whatever, something basically like I got this, you know, I'm editing the show and I'm getting excited. You know, I'm putting the clips together. I'm getting the music ready. It's fitting, fitting all together. And, and this week it just felt like the music was just falling into place. I got like, oh, I just feel like I had all the right music for all the clips. And so I was getting excited. And then I realized like, you know what? I get this feeling every week. <laughs> So I don't know why it comes as a surprise ever, because I always feel this way every time I'm putting the shows together. And anyways, I just love doing this show. I, I've never done anything in my life that I've enjoyed more or been more proud of than this show. And it's just a way of putting a little bit finer point on the gratitude that I have to those of you who are interested enough in the show that you've actually become members to support it and I mean really this isn't meant to be a big pitch for everyone to be a member I'm really just saying I'm so grateful that I now have the opportunity to dedicate a big chunk of my time to doing this show because it's always been something that I've done in the periphery like it's all I've always had to do it at night or on the weekends or get up ungodly early in the morning. I was doing that for a while. Um, but And I don't have to anymore. I can do it like during a normal day. And that is because of the members. It's the support of the members, a little bit of advertising revenue, you know, all, all these little things. It, you know, anyone who buys uh, merchandise at the store, anyone who just makes a regular donation, like all this stuff is adding up to just barely enough that I'm not going to like starve in the streets. So anyways, I just felt like I don't uh, necessarily mention often enough how much I love doing this and how grateful I am for the opportunity to do it. And that's because of the support, like really the support in whatever way it comes from the audience. I mean, just you guys telling five friends is helping. And I mean, everything helps. So I just wanted to make the quick point about that, and now I have. I mean, really, like, this is an awesome hobby to have. It's the it's the feeling that all bloggers or podcasters want to have when they start, that what they do will actually garner a following, and that people will appreciate the work that they do, and so I just can't be appreciative enough that all the work that I put into this, you know, I mean... Frankly, it's a pretty solitary hobby to have. 
you know, I, for the most part, I, I get out and I'm a vaguely productive member of society. The only difference for me is that I'm never without my iPod plugged into my ears so that I can be listening to all the shows and getting clips ready for, uh, for the podcast. But the idea that all the work and all the time that goes into it is appreciated to the point that I can now do it part-time and is pretty amazing. So that is it for today. Continue to support the show in all of the following ways. Stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook, as well as by subscribing to the newsletter. Support the show with reviews in iTunes, that's very important, and at Podcast Alley, voting every month. Links to those things are at the website. You can listen to the show on your smartphone without having to sync to your computer at stitcher.com. And for more information about any of our episodes, you can visit the show notes on the blog, find links to all of the sources and music we use in each show. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members from bestoftheleft.com.